This is the weekend edition of The Code Report. Hello and welcome to The Core Report Weekend Edition. My guest for today is Vinayak Chatterjee, Managing Trustee of the InfraVision Foundation and also a founder of Feedback Infra. He's worked across many, many disciplines, but he's been, among other things, the Chairman of the Confederation of Indian Industries National Council on Infrastructure, chaired various infrastructure and economic councils at the national level of CII since 2001. He's also served as the Chairman of the Board of Governors of IIT Dharwad and the Board's of IIM Srimarur, Sirmaur and the National Rail and Transportation Institute, Baroda. And then I am grad from 1979 to 81. Vidak, thank you so much for joining us. So the broader theme today is supply chains in the global order. We're talking about supply chains from India. The specific theme is the IMEC or the India Middle East Europe Economic Corridor and what it really portends for us and how it's going to play out. So let me ask the simple question first. One is, what is the IMEC corridor, apart from the fact that it is an India-Middle-East-Europe corridor? What is the problem that it's really trying to solve? Well, that's a good question. And for your viewers, let's just first put on the table what the India-Middle-East-Europe corridor is. Essentially, as it stands today, it is a transportation link starting at Mumbai from where goods will be sent by ship to Dubai port then be transported by rail from Dubai port to Haifa port in Israel via Jordan, and then go by ship again to the port of Piraeus in Greece. From there, they'll travel overland by road or rail to Hamburg in Germany, which is heartland industrialized Europe. And the project has eight key stakeholders, people who have signed the MOU during the G20 deliberations in Delhi. India, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Italy, France, Germany, USA, and the European Union all of whom have been signatories to the MOU. And interestingly, Israel is an enthusiastic partner. Now, this is the corridor. The question really is, why is it called a corridor? It is a line that is drawn of how a goods or a container will travel. Now, there are two types of corridors. One is a logistics corridor, which is purely a routing of transportation. The other is an economic corridor, where across a given route, there are different industries or economic enclaves that produce value. As things stand today, this IMEC is a logistics transportation corridor, but that's not the end of the story. It has the potential to flower into an economic corridor. So what's the problem that it's trying to solve from an India perspective or the outcome it's trying to achieve? You know, the answer is in two buckets. One is trade and the other very interestingly, which has not been noticed, is its strong nuance on geopolitics. So let me take the geopolitics portion first because it's an important stage setting. And to answer the question or address the issue of geopolitics, I will have to talk about the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, which was launched by China 10 years ago. It drew a lot of attention as 10 years ago, it sought to encompass over 100 countries in its fold across South Asia, Southeast Asia, Central Asia, Eastern Europe, and the African continent. Its string of projects across this vast terrain took in ports, airports, industrial parks, power plants. It had a vast array of projects across 100 countries. Most importantly, the Chinese held out the promise of cheap long-term funds for infrastructure development. Now, the fact is that the BRI, or the Belt and Road Initiative, has got somewhat discredited recently as many of the beneficiary countries, which were low-income emergent nations are suddenly realizing 
that they're being led up some kind of a debt trap. Having said it, one cannot wish away the BRI. By the way, the BRI is still quite robust and has a number of interesting projects across the world. So it's not something that we write off. Everybody may not be happy with it, but it still has a certain life of its own. Now, talking about geopolitics of the IMEC or the IME corridor, it is clear that India as the third largest economy in the world is the bulwark of the plan. And geopolitically, it in a sense sends a strong signal as to how the whole thing pans out in terms of the geopolitics. But first is the benefit to India. Since you asked the question, what is the benefit to India? I have four points to answer there. One, undoubtedly, it is a significant reduction in logistics costs along certain nodes in the route. However, with the caveat that if I want to ship a container by ship direct from Mumbai to Hamburg through the Suez Canal, it still works out cheaper than this corridor. So, the, in effect, the two endpoints are not what is the attempt, but there are nodes in between countries and nodes in between for which certainly the logistics costs will be cheaper because of the way the lines are drawn. So, therefore, there is expected for India to be a blossoming of trade with countries hitherto unexploited, such as Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is on a boom, by the way. If you read yesterday's ET, it said LNT's order book is like a large portion of its overseas order book is Saudi Arabia. Also. So, India needs to develop its links with Saudi Arabia. So, it's one of the big achievements in the trade geopolitical route, also with countries in the Gulf, with UAE, with East Europe and possibly with other countries that spur off from the main route. Third, India has an expectation that there is a 2,600 kilometers long rail link, a dedicated freight corridor kind of an infrastructure play that has to be built between across the Arabian Peninsula, between Dubai and Haifa through Jordan. Now, that's a 2,600 crore rail link, and India, with its proven expertise of building rail lines in Africa and Bangladesh, etc., that we have the best chance of having a very large infrastructure project coming to us, which is the rail link. Now, that is an expectation India has. So, there is an expectation of enhanced status of being a big infrastructure developer player in West Asia with this rail. Also, it shrugs off the earlier India-Iran-Russia-INSTC. Many of your viewers may have forgotten or listeners may have forgotten that we were signatories to something called the International North-South Transport Corridor with Iran and Russia, where the Chabahar port in Iran was the fulcrum of that routing. But things haven't quite panned out that way. And this corridor now allows India to actually shove off that initiative. But again, staying with geopolitics, fundamentally, since I mentioned the club of countries that have signatories to the MOU or IMEC, it sends a powerful message that a swap of well-meaning and friendly countries have joined hands to impact transport, trade and economic development in a model quite different from a dominant one-country model that the Chinese propagated with BRI. Italy, for instance, has decided to pull out of the BRI. Moreover, it is seen as a diplomatic victory for India in many ways as the IMEC bypasses both Pakistan and Turkey, both of which are nation-states which are not currently considered the most favorably inclined to India. And lastly, geopolitically, it very interestingly opens up a viable access to Gulf, West Asia and to Eastern Europe through a land route, which a combination of a land and sea route, which the land portion was unfortunately blocked by Pakistan. So I think while most of the conversation is about trade and logistics, 
I would actually give equal weightage to the geopolitical signals that it sends over and above the trade benefits. Right. So let me pick on a couple of points, Vinayak. So the first is you talked about, you know, a container going from, let's say, Mumbai to Hamburg and that being cheaper than, let's say, going through this route. And that's, of course, logical. But you said the value is really on the intermittent points along the way. What would be a good illustration of that? Well, a good illustration of that would be, in a sense, the opening up of Eastern Europe. The many of the Istans and Eastern Europe countries, many of the West Asian countries, take countries like Israel, Jordan. These are all countries which are on the line. And quite honestly, when a transport corridor blossoms into an economic corridor, what happens is that spurs take off. So you have countries adjoining the route, which are not today named in the route, but for whom nodes can take off. And therefore, it gives India an extremely good logistics trade advantage with Gulf, Central Asia and Eastern Europe so that containers don't have to go to Hamburg and come back. So in the intermediate points, a seamless logistic track with all the paperwork and the hassles all sorted out gives India a big trade advantage in a very happening part of the world today, which is earlier West Asia and the Gulf were seen as oil. Today, they're not seen as oil. They're seen with the kind of orders we're talking about that LNT gets in EPC or maybe we will get rail orders. It is going to be seen as an economically happening part of the world. So India gets uh, put into that door through IMEEC. So you also talked about the other route which goes overland by rail, which involves the setting up of railway lines. So what is India's, let's say, investment in this vis-a-vis the benefit to it versus what those, the countries that own the land on which that railway line will be built? Does India get a greater benefit? Does Or conversely, why would those countries invest so much in these rail networks through their countries when, yes, they may or may not be specific benefit to them? Your question is in two parts. For India, it is very clear. We are looking on the world stage as an emergent third largest economic country to have a greater play in developing and running mega-scale infrastructure projects across the world. So do a 2,600-kilometer rail line across the Arabian Peninsula is a very major showcase project for us to tell the world that today I can develop ports, airports, rail links. So it's going to be a very major project from an Indian point of view. And luckily for us in a sector where we genuinely, the world believes that we have expertise, which is the building of railroad tracks, you know, which we are very good at. From the mountainous regions to Konkan Railway, India has proven it. The question is about the funding. Now, my initial back of the envelope calculation says that if you multiply 2,600 kilometers by 30 crores a kilometer, you end up with a project cost of 78,000 or 80,000 crores, roughly. Now, in today's world, that's not a very humongous amount. Seven years ago, the Japanese gave us 1 lakh crore for our bullet train project, soft funding. So that happened seven years ago that one country, JICA, gave, without batting an eyelid, 1 lakh crore of 60-year funding at 1.5%. So to provide 78,000 crores across seven well-heeled MOU signing countries, to my mind, financing is not the problem. The issue there is why should India get it? Because of all the countries that have signed the MOU, I think we have the biggest intellectual and engineering capacity to build that rate. Yeah. Is this more like an EPC contract, which is good, obviously, for India and Indian companies? Or does it mean anything beyond that? Is really my question. I mean, no, no, my question is beyond EPC. After the railroad is built, I would like Indians to operate that rail. So we would have ambitions to operate a rail line on contract from the bunch of owners, and we would also be a part owner. Everybody hopefully will contribute some capital. So we would be running uh, infrastructure projects of that scale and size 
in the railways is a big feather in India's cap on the infrastructures and diplomatic side. But more importantly, there are other lines that are also going to go through the land route. There would be optic fiber cables, there would be electricity transmission grids. You know, those are things which would follow the tracks. It would be a linkage corridor, so it has a lot of potential. But this railway line runs through other sovereign nations and obviously their participation as well as their continuous involvement in this project to make it a success is important. So their buy-in, both financially and otherwise, and in extending to the fact that, as you say, they should allow us to be running the network is critical. So obviously an MOU means that we are heading in that direction. No, no there's no there's no clarity yet. No, let me set the record straight, Govind. There is no official communication that the railroad is going to be built by India. It is our aspiration. And we must, among the club of partners, we must now stake our rightful claim to say, we need to be the chosen one to build and operate that railroad. That would mean something to India. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit. So let's talk about where or what we are trying to do with all of this. So we want to obviously export goods and import goods. And, and we are not talking services because this is physical. And we want to send containers or dry bulk goods across the sea and then on the railway line. So again, what is it that we could do that we are not doing already, either outward or inward through this corridor? I mean, the corridor doesn't exist. So it's difficult to say what we are not doing. I suppose India is trying its best to develop trade. I mean, our commerce minister is signing FTAs with UAE and others. So we are trying the softer side of developing trade. This adds the hardware to the trade side. So it's a double engine. So while our diplomatic missions, our Ministry of Commerce are all, you know, trying to develop, it's moved from a multilateral world to a regional or a bilateral world and the trade regime. So we are doing, we are attacking a lot of the softer issues, FTAs, etc., which you read in the papers every day. This one attacks the hardware side. There are actually 15 nations who are involved across the chain. Now, if you are able to create a single pass system where Containers are not stopped at 15 border checkpoints to look for customs duties or illegal stuff going through. Then you actually have a very beneficial corridor to foster the hardware impetus to the software efforts that are going in. So one will have to look at it in tandem with the software side of diplomatic FTAs and getting the best deal for India and the hardware side, which is one of the links the corridor provides. Right. The BRI, for example, the Belt and Road Initiative, involves Chinese companies setting up along those points of value add, like you pointed out, producing there, manufacturing there, contributing to local economy, sending obviously money back to China, but building a global manufacturing ecosystem of sorts. Some of it links back to the motherland, some of it doesn't. So is that the thinking here too? I mean, that along this corridor? See, there are 15 participating nations. So each nation, to my mind, would want to build appropriate economic capacities along the link. I mean, that is the natural expectation. And also the Chinese, while it may be aspirational for them, see, the Chinese have a disparate bunch of investments. They are ultimately the BRI is not about a logical chain. It is about a basket of investments. Now, in all the basket of investments, it is difficult to envisage Chinese setting up economic enclaves all over the place. And looking at the current state of the Chinese economy, I think that aspiration would have mellowed down hugely because the BRI initiative has also been cut hugely. It's still going on, but not with the same, shall we say, force of passion that it was launched with. So along the route, I think it is up to each country to maximize, to maximize its benefit from that corridor. 
And already in India, we are talking about linking three ports. We are talking about Mundra, Kandla, and Navi Mumbai. I have a separate point that, assuming that the ink is not dried on the MOU and things are flexible, I certainly think that India should be defined as subcontinental India. And we should, as a big brother, with good intent and good geopolitics, link Chittagong port and Colombo port, and potentially the new transshipment port for which the bids are likely to come out soon in Andamans. Finally, there is no reason why this should only be a physical link. Only after all, when a corridor is being established, and I talked about pipelines and optic fiber links. Remember, for long, there has been a talk of, an, of a pan-Asian energy grid. Today, it exists in parts. We buy hydropower from Bhutan. We supply coal thermal from Jharkhand to Bangladesh. And there is talk of an undersea cable to Sri Lanka. The important point is, in a time when the world is moving to renewables, when the sun is setting in Bangladesh, it is shining very brightly in Israel, right? So why can't I have an electricity grid that maximizes sunlight as the earth moves? That should also be a laudable or a desirable portion of this link. Could you transport electricity to such long distances without loss or considerable loss? Those things can be managed. I mean, there will be some transmission loss, but it is easier to transmit electricity than it is to transmit oil and green hydrogen and other such stuff. Electricity is easier. So, my question is now, let's look at the India exports basket, particularly from an aspirational point of view. So, for example, now the focus is on electronics, semiconductors, iPhones. And iPhone is a good illustration of what we're trying to do and have already done to some extent with, let's say, the latest iPhones now being manufactured in India as opposed to the six-month lag from China and so on. So if you look at where we are today and where we are going in terms of manufacturing, how do these corridors play or could they play or are they positioned in the right place to play a role or a meaningful role? Look, specifically for the IMEC. It is clear that India is moving up the value chain in terms of the complexity of its manufactured products. Much of it also has to do with the policy that this government is following. Like, for example, now you have to manufacture laptops and stuff like that in India, right? Before that, it was iPhones. You've got a big manufacturing capacity coming up in manufacturing solar modules, right? Pharmaceuticals is big in India. So all these countries that are linked, honestly don't have the kind of scale capacities. While India is much smaller in scale than China, our capacities certainly are larger than many of these smaller countries along the route. So there is a natural demand for all such products which need to be transshipped there. So looking at 10-20 years ahead, India is going to be a vast manufacturing entity making reasonably value-added manufacturers. It could be furniture, it could be electronics items, it could be pharmaceuticals, it could be solar modules, it could be wind turbines, it could be engineering, light engineering products. So a hell of a lot of stuff can move out of India into these neighboring countries, which in today's context used to be a problem because I did not have an overland access. So it is certainly going to make movement easier in terms of exporting goods out of India. And all manufacturing in India needs components, supplies, etc. from the rest of the world. So it's not, we're not living in isolation. So even it will make imports of many sub-assemblies, sub-components, etc. important. But basically, it opens up an area of geography which you and I not often talk about. Every time in our growing up years, it's always been Europe and America and all that, you know. Right. So a lot of the action in electronics is really east of us and not west of us. So on the east, 
our trade agreements are a little weaker than they've been before. Our trade to Asia has actually reduced while it has either remained the same or increased proportionately to the West. So since you touched upon Chittagong and Sri Lanka, which is more on the East, what's your sense about where we are headed and or whether or how we should be looking at transportation corridors on the other side? Many of these products, particularly electronics, has been dominated by East Asian countries, South Korea, Taiwan, China, etc. But as you are seeing now, with a combination of China plus one, as well as government policy interventions, much of the production is now being forced to come to India. Some are coming by design and some are coming by default. Even the ones who are coming by default seem to be pretty happy about it because I was reading some of the statements of the HP chairman and the ARC. They're saying, yes, we are setting up scale capacity in India. So if this is the trend that India is in a China plus one policy or India with a bigger play policy, make in India policy, localized manufacturing policy, we are going to be a substantive scale player in such items. And the countries that are on the corridor are customers. Their populations are going to buy these products. Therefore, we will need these outlets to sell our produce. The IMEC corridor is a happy link, but it's not the only link. So let's not get obsessive about this link. It provides a certain connectivity across a certain geography, which is very good. But that's not the end of the story. At the end of the day, the world is our market. Yeah, so my question is more conceptual, uh, Vinayak. I mean, as someone who's, let's say, trying to understand where we are as a country in the middle of this. So this is the West and it's a India, Middle East, Europe economic corridor. Is there a need for something similar or maybe existing arrangements are good enough in the East? Given that, you know, on the electronic side, a lot of material is going back and forth in East of India rather than the West of India. Remember, India had a look East policy, right? And in that look East policy, there were some announcements which most people have forgotten about a connectivity from the end of India to the ports in Bangladesh to reduce the distance from the furthest northeastern states to access ports in the Bay of Bengal. There were announcements of a road corridor through Myanmar and Thailand to connect to Malaysia and Singapore. Now, this look East policy had thrown up these ideas, but unfortunately, for various reasons, maybe because of the breakdown of relationships with Myanmar or something else, some of the infrastructure projects announced have not quite taken off in the East. And the West now, to be honest with you, most of India's new investments in manufacturing, whether we like it or not, and many of us don't like the development west of the Kanpur line, as they say, but it is true that much of India's manufacturing is happening in a few states in the western side of India, right? And therefore, it seems a natural springboard for the marketing of those products to have a very viable option to route their goods to customers in West Asia and further on to Eastern Europe. So it makes sense. The East somehow is often talked about, but very little is done. Even in the last 20 years, I've heard many prime ministers talk about Look East policy. But after the sound and noise dies down, as a country, we have very little to show for cooperative infrastructure built with a few countries joining hands together. I haven't seen any. Right. Okay. If I were to ask you, Vinayak, to sum up. So I started by asking you about the India-Middle East-Europe economic corridor. What is the problem that it's trying to solve or the outcome it's trying to achieve? And I think you placed it in two buckets. You've talked about the geopolitical aspect and you obviously talked about the trade opportunity and the value add across the route and not to look at the beginning and the end of this route as the end objective in itself. So how is it looking to you in terms of when we will start seeing things happening? 
even as it is today, or rather where it is today on the drawing board with all the MOUs or most of the MOUs in place? There are two sets of activities that need to run in parallel. It is a combination of a new railway line and operating ports. So far as operating ports are concerned, whether it is Haifa or Jebel Ali in Dubai or Mumbai, Kandla, we don't have a problem with the ports. There is adequate capacity and if more capacity is required, additional berths can easily be built. So ports are not an issue. So the real issue is to build the high-speed rail link from Dubai right up to Haifa. That is the single biggest hardware piece. In parallel, there has to be a software piece where 15 countries get together to ease the border crossing restrictions. You need a single pass system where if I load a container in Bombay on a ship and it, let's say it has to reach Hamburg, then nobody has to check a piece of paper by opening the container or stopping it for 2-3 days. It has to go seamlessly right through. That, to my mind, this hardware of building the railway link and the software of hassle-free movement are the two things that need to start right now in parallel. Once these two get onto a certain momentum, then I think the challenge will be that why should it only be countries who are on the link that benefit? The question that you asked earlier, even drawing 100 to 200 kilometer spurs from the link, you could potentially add another host of countries. So each country then along the link needs to address the question which you again asked, how can I maximize the benefit to my country by exploiting this link, by setting up an appropriate economic enclave or industrial park or whatever the language is. So these are the three sets of activities that are required. Vinayak, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the Thank you for listening.